to be back at the Classical Music Pod after Christmas. Mm, and it's a good one this week. Yeah. We've got a chat with Nicola Benedetti on the launch of the Benedetti Sessions in London. We unwrap a masterpiece by America's first great composer, Amy Beach. We talk to violinist Tamsin Whaley-Cohen about one of Mozart's greatest influences, C.P.E. Bach. And we hear how K-pop is fueling the Chilean protest movement. Sam, tell me what's been happening whilst we've been on our Christmas break. The classical music website BarkTrack have released their annual set of concert statistics, which this year draws from nearly 35,000 performances of concert, opera and dance, the highest or deepest pool of data yet. The unsurprising headline here is that Beethoven, Mozart and Bach have come out as the top three most performing composers. Indeed, 13% of all classical concerts feature a work by Beethoven. But examine these stats a little closer and you'll find reason to be cheerful. For example, in 2016, there were seven women in the top 50 contemporary composers. Now there are 13 in the top 50 and 24 in the top 100. The most performed female composer was Cecilia McDowell, followed closely by Jennifer Higdon and Sophia Gubaidalina. Furthermore, in 2013, there was only one woman in the top 100 busiest conductors. Now there are eight. At the current rate, by 2062... There'll be as many women as men in the top 100, so a little bit of work to do yet. It was announced last week that the government has pledged £80 million towards music hubs for the upcoming school year, while a further £4 million will go towards cultural education programmes and £1 million will go to music charities. However... Labour's Shadow Secretary of State for Education, Angela Rayner, has pointed out that the funding is not sufficient to address the impact of a decade of austerity. She said under the Tories, the curriculum has narrowed, teaching of arts subjects has plummeted, and the additional funding being promised for schools will not even reverse the government's own cuts. Indeed. While this £80 million is an increase on hub funding over the past four years, it is still below what was provided to the old music services that they replaced in 2012. And, according to Department of Education Statistics, the school pupil population increased from 8.2 million to 8.82 million between January 2012 and January 2019. So there's less money being distributed between more people but this announcement does mean it's slightly better than it would have been anyway. Yes. <laughs> Sam, what's next? No doubt many listeners will be looking forward to the release in April of James Bond, No Time to Die. Well, you may have even more reason to be cheerful. Following American composer Dan Romer's dismissal by producers, German ubermensch Hans Zimmer has agreed to step in at the last minute. It was also announced this week that American singer-songwriter Billy Eilish will be singing the theme tune for this year's Bond, so that's another thing to look forward to. Music, music again. More risk. 
and more heart and more soul. Music can make you feel everything and nothing and anything. That was the sound of American pop and soul singer Lizzo, who has appeared in an advert for Dolby Music, Flute in Hand. It's not the first time she showed off her skills with the instrument. The classically trained flautist first picked up a flute 20 years ago to play in her Houston Junior High marching band. In 2017, she went viral after sharing a video of her covering Future's Mask Off. See the link in the description below. And she's since uploaded loads more videos. Talking of masks off, at a concert this weekend, members of the Orchestre de Paris refused to wear concert gear in solidarity with striking members of the company who have taken action over planned pension reform in France. Similarly, on Christmas Eve, 27 dancers from the Paris Opera took to the steps of the Opera Garnier performing Swan Lake in protest against plans to scrap their special pension scheme which currently allows them to retire at the age of 42. On the subject of protest, across the Atlantic in Chile this week, music has been utilised not just as a method for protesting, but a catalyst too. A performance of Mahler's Second Symphony by young professionals and students in Santiago was greeted by flag-waving and slogan-chanting for the movement for social justice. Since October, protests have been raging in the country over its outdated economic model, as well as its privatised pension system and police brutality against demonstrators, several of whom have been killed. Just before Christmas, the Chilean Interior Ministry presented a report on elements that had encouraged the protests, and amazingly, it found that K-pop fans were among the main offenders. The behaviour of 5 million social media users over October and November was analysed, and the results were largely unsurprising. Young people, for example, are the biggest group and are highly influenced by social media. What was more odd is how the report specifically calls out that they are fans of K-pop, placing the genre alongside Russian news networks and celebrity activists as a recognised foreign influencer. K-pop Twitter has gone mad with some fantastic pictures of artists wearing hammer and sickle symbols and reading copies of Das Kapital. Perhaps after the concert in Santiago, Marla fans and indeed classical music pod fans, will go on to a list of undesirables. Red. Red! And finally, he's gone, he's gone, he's gone? Indeed, the French businessman Carlos Ghosn, who has been charged in Japan with financial crimes, has skipped his bail and escaped the country by hiding in a double base case. According to the Lebanese news channel MTV, the former CEO of Renault and Nissan was smuggled out of his home right under the noses of the Japanese authorities who had him under surveillance. The report said that a paramilitary group entered his home under the guise of a hired band for a Gregorian dinner. It's still not entirely clear what a Gregorian dinner is, or why it requires a double base case, but the ruse was bold enough to catch the Japanese off guard, and Gon now walks free in Lebanon. Incidentally, Gon is not the first to escape the law in this way. In 1966, the Soviet spy George Blake also escaped Britain inside a double base case. Today I want to talk about a piece by one of my new favourite composers, Amy Beach. Analysis Ah, Amy Beach is new to me too. Well, she was new to the world in 1867 when she was born. 
A good place to meet her is in her variations on Balkan themes for piano. It's a piece that shows how she's able to synthesize, able to compromise, and able to satisfy competing sets of expectations. It's a high-wire balancing act. Exactly. I'm reliably informed it's her most technically demanding piece. It was first performed in 1905, and it's an expansive, expressive solo for piano that you can listen to the whole of if you've got a spare half an hour and a desire to do something nice for yourself. Here's a snippet being played by Californian pianist Virginia Eskin. It's kind of like Rachmaninoff. Well, the matter of influence is where I'd like to start. I think that there are three syntheses at work in the Balkan variations. Influence is the first synthesis. Beach was a serious concert pianist, and before her marriage in 1885 was a regular recitalist. The repertoire she was performing was typical of American soloists of the day, works by European masters like Beethoven, Mendelssohn and Liszt. She also included her own compositions, although she wasn't sent to Europe to study like the male prodigies of the time. The first musical culture that she includes in her synthesis is the Western European canon that, despite being an American, is what she was raised with. The other musical element arrives with the Balkan themes. There are four, and they all make use of the funky augmented second that isn't that common in Western European melodies. What is it? It's like a normal second... Made bigger. Here are those four themes. Listen out for the haunting Egyptian interval. One, two, three, and four. Beach came across these themes while she was visited by the Reverend William W. Sleeper, a missionary who had been visiting Bulgaria. He played her what he reported were several melodies from the region. Beach gave a romanticised description of the origins in her preface, but only two of the themes appear in folk anthologies. They're actually urban songs. How does she blend these with European art music, then? Beach has been quite crafty. In the traditional Bulgarian scale, the augmented second is between the second and third step of that scale. Whereas she shifts it to be between the sixth and seventh, which makes it sound like a traditional harmonic minor scale. Although that leading note isn't allowed to resolve until the end of the piece. So some Balkan characteristics remain, but they're now in Western art structures. Yes, and structures brings us to synthesis too. Theme and variation forms tended to come in two flavours. There's the character variations. Got any examples? Uh, Think Elgar Enigma variations or the Dvorak orchestral variations. And how do they work? Well, you take the theme and then you put it into different contexts. There'll be a happy one, a marchy one, one that uses triplets... Kind of like the slightly racist Enid Blyton books, The Famous Five. Each book is sort of five go to the countryside, five go to the moon, 
Five use outdated racial slurs in several of their publications. You know they do. I do know they do. So there's character variations that tend to stick quite strictly to the phrase structure of the theme and just change the topic. But then also there's the more freeform variations, something called like a, a fantasy on a certain theme, or possibly several themes. They are more like a gritty, multi-stranded HBO series where different thematic material is developed over a painstakingly long process. And an example might be? Something like Strauss's Don Quixote. Okay, great. Beach does a very crafty thing with her Balkan variations. She manages to tread a fine line between these two models, incorporating aspects of them both, and musically speaking, creates a gritty HBO series about the famous five. And how does that work in practice? The first three variations retain the exact structure of the theme, five four-bar phrases with the same harmonic structure. The first variation is a canon, The second is just the same, but with flashy harmony. And the third ends with a tiesta piccadilly, where you make the last chord that should be minor into a major to give a sense of closure, a technique pioneered in the Picardy region of France. That one. That one. From variation four onwards, Beach starts blending into a more free set of variations. The phrase structures open up and the harmonic adventure begins roaming far and wide. Yet still, number five goes all major and cheery. It's the famous five go happy. Number six is basically a slow, fast combo that could be seen as a homage slash ripoff of Liszt's Hungarian fantasy. And number eight is a big old funeral march that sounds quite a lot like Chopin and Beethoven. So there's a characterization in each variation but with an ever-increasing license to deviate into the realms of fantasy. Precisely. And what about Synthesis 3? Well, Synthesis 3 is a bit more controversial, but go with it. She managed to satisfy the competing criteria of something sounding like Balkan music and Western art music. She balanced the needs of character and free variation. But I think perhaps Beach's most difficult synthesis is she managed to meet her own musical and artistic needs and desires to keep composing and performing, whilst keeping the misogynistic and patriarchal systems that ruled her world happy enough. When she married, she agreed to stop working as a musician, except for two recitals a year. These became enormously anticipated, and she was able to perform her own compositions at them, like this piece, to large audiences who respected her work. Unlike, say... Clara Schumann, who because of her unique skills and personal circumstances was able to blow up the whole system around her, Beach managed to meet the restrictive social expectations of the time as well as create a musical legacy as America's most important composer of the period, possibly the most important American composer before Charles Ives. It's a compromise, and one we wish her talent didn't have to make, but she did so successfully, and it may well have been a harder balancing act than shifting augmented seconds around. Composer fact file, Amy Beach. Born in New Hampshire, USA, 1867. 
By the age of one, she was said to be able to harmonize with the lullabies being sung to her. As a child, she began composing without a piano, using just the pitches in her head. She made her concert debut as a pianist aged 16 in Boston's Music Hall. A major breakthrough came with her mass in E-flat major, performed in 1892, which was the first piece composed by a woman that the Handel and Haydn Society Orchestra had played in their 77-year history. In 1896, her Gaelic symphony became the first by an American woman to be published. In 1885, Amy married Dr. Henry Harris Aubrey Beach. One of the conditions of her marriage was that she stop working as a piano teacher and restrict her public performances to two a year. In honor of Beach's 150th birthday, Marty Walsh, mayor of the city of Boston, declared September 5th to be Amy Beach Day. On hearing the premiere of the Gaelic Symphony, composer George Whitefield Chadrick wrote to Beach to call her one of the boys. Um, I've been, yeah, I did my first tour of schools when I was 16, 15, so um, I, it's been a long, long time coming. It's a lifelong dedication. It's kind of... It's, and I don't see it as separate at all to my actual performing life. Tim, you've been following Nicola Bernadetti around for the past week, at her behest, I should add, finding out about her new foundation and the work they're doing. What exactly is it and who's involved? So, the Benedetti Foundation was set up last year by the eponymous violinist and a team of music education experts that includes her old school friend, Laura Gardner, and the former director of the National Orchestra of Wales, Michael Garvey. Mm. Its raison d'etre is essentially to get more UK children and young people involved with and passionate about music, whether that's by supporting schools and hubs with their own team of directors and tutors, or by pulling together individuals and organisations that often work in isolation or directly inspiring young players and teachers through a series of orchestra-based weekends they've just started running called the Benedetti Sessions. They're all looking at each other like, should we really do this? And you went along to one of these all-inclusive sessions. I did indeed. The first one ever held in London, in fact, and one of three that runs between January and March, which together will reach about 3,000 young people. I went down to the Southbank Centre and joined the several hundred kids taking part in this huge event that ran throughout the weekend. The first day kicked off with a performance from Nikki and her team and after a bunch of workshops, masterclasses and rehearsals culminated in a concert for parents in which the students played through the pieces they'd been working on. Um, We really want you over the next period of time to just be as relaxed as possible, to love and enjoy music as much as you possibly can. We're also very much here to learn and to improve. And apart from Nicola, who else was involved in running these workshops? There was a team of incredibly enthusiastic tutors, Mm -hmm. all seasoned players and teachers. When I spoke to Nikki a few days before, she told me how much care had gone into choosing this team. Are they sort of friends of friends? No, they're they're exclusively people over time we've come to trust and love their work. So we've been 
We've been really careful and yeah. really uncompromising with who we've yeah. worked with and teamed up with. And that really shone through on the day that these were people that you could really tell that she trusted and they were brilliant. There was a tutor called David Munn, for example, who took a workshop in the morning and by the end, everyone in the room was completely hanging off his words, <laughs> like Mark Walker style, who you and yeah, I yeah, yeah. had growing up. All right, uh, I'm Charlie. I'm what they call the lead ambassador. There was also a group of ambassadors who sit in with the kids and act as a kind of link between them and the tutors. I had a quick chat with the lead ambassador, Charlie, about how he got involved with the foundation. They reached out to the colleges around London and had the ambassadors sort of apply and write up a little piece about what they think about the state of education and what their philosophies are about it. Uh, so that was those were the two avenues. I what were the main takeaways from the session? Okay, so for me, there were four main points. Firstly, the kids have been given a bunch of online resources prior to the weekend, like scores and video explainers made by Nikki, and I was impressed mm. with how well prepared they were as a result. And that was a surprise, partly because the residential music courses you and I did growing up never did this, and partly because I've always been sceptical about the effectiveness of online learning, especially when you're that age. Yeah. But of course it completely makes sense, because teachers often tell me how frustrating it is going o over notes in lessons, which is time that should be spent working on everything else, the musicality. And kids are so much more habituated to learning things from screens these days, I suppose. Yeah, especially compared to how we were at that yeah. age. And it was funny, Nikki actually said that before the final session in Glasgow, they had no idea if it would work <laughs> or not. But they were blown away when the kids rocked up with a really good understanding of the pieces. And what was your second takeaway? It wasn't just children and young people taking part, but also about 100 or so peripatetic teachers. There were workshops and talks set up specifically for them. And actually, half of the activity carried out by the organisation as a whole is aimed at supporting teachers. Mm. I think a lot of people forget how isolated peripatetic teachers are and how important it is that they're nurtured too. Yeah, I think as a peripatetic teacher, you sort of get the job and then you're let loose. A lot of people will go into peripatetic teaching as an excellent performer themselves who may have been taught by excellent teachers, but that doesn't necessarily mean they've spent a huge amount of time thinking about how to teach or being taught how to teach, which is a separate skill. And the scarcity of opportunities to develop your pedagogy means that something like this could be a real asset mm. for peripatetic teachers around the country. Exactly, and that was reflected in the comments that were made by the teachers I spoke to directly after the session. Just uh, learning so much about the process of music education and sort of being re-enthused about every step along the way and how to cultivate that. The third takeaway was the huge emphasis on the social benefits of music making. Yeah. Nobody was there to find the next set of Nicola Benedetti's and it wasn't about rehearsing for a spotless performance of Bartok's Romanian folk dances it was about making lots of mistakes <laughs> learning from that process and being inspired by the atmosphere that collaborative music making creates one of the tutors Lucy Draver put it very eloquently to us at that press conference we were at a couple of days before 
So for me, music education is really key for the children, as much as Nikki is amazing, and I would love a hundred of her. For me, it's about kind of equipping kids with the life skills, the kids that might go on to be, I don't know, an accountant, or a surgeon, or a CEO, or a teacher, just whatever they decide to do. I meet so many young people, and orchestral players actually, who find it very difficult to walk into a room and just say their name. And for me, kind of the exercises that we do, it just allows people to actually breathe, to learn what good posture is, to learn how to take up space, like so essential for our young people, and just to have the permission to make sound. This attitude permeated through everything Nicola and her team did, and it meant that during the final performance, the atmosphere in the hall was absolutely ecstatic. I think what made it all the more special was that because the foundation has really worked hard to engage as many local schools and hubs as possible and the only cost was an admin fee of about five pounds it meant that there was a massive range of social and ethnic backgrounds represented and were they all from greater london or just one specific area pretty much the whole of the city there were children from 30 out of the 32 london boroughs and Really importantly, the majority, about 64%, were from state schools. And so all the money to pay for tutors comes from private funding or donations or something? Exactly, and that's why it's so important to have a big name like Nicola as a figurehead for a foundation like this. Yeah. So from the sounds of things, Nicola is pretty hands-on. Yeah, and this is the fourth and final takeaway that I have. She's utterly driven. I couldn't believe the energy she had and how passionately she believed in what she was doing. Just by being there, it felt like the atmosphere in the room was lifted and the kids were, as you'd expect, completely buzzing to play with her. Oh, well, it's amazing because she's so inspiring and like um, she's just like amazing. Yeah. And, yeah. and you feel like that she's helping you teach a lot? Yeah. You're learning a lot. Yeah, it's really exciting because I've never done it before. Yeah, she's very inspiring because she's, like, really good. And I just want to be like her when I'm older. And it's not just these sessions she's doing. As well as her work with the foundation, she's going into conservatoires and schools to do masterclasses. She does interactive family concerts and she's got her own violin teaching channel on YouTube called With Nikki. The bow hold and the right hand position. I'd like you to start... Do you think her being taught at the Yehudi Menuhin School, which was set up by an equally well-known performer and teacher, has had an impact on the importance she places on music education? I think that is a factor, yes, and I put that to her on the day. Yeah. Um, well, it wasn't very decisive in terms of my relationship to Yehudi Menuhin in the school, but without a question of a doubt, he has been a, a massively inspiring figure to me. Um, and actually, as time goes on, I've, I have uh, looked more and more deeply into how he managed the millions of things that he was doing at one time. Um, I've been... Yeah, I did my first tour of schools when I was 16, 15 so um, I, it's been a long, long time coming, it's a lifelong dedication, it's kind of it's, and I don't see it as separate at all to my yeah. actual performing life And how is she juggling her playing career alongside teaching? Has she found she's had to compromise at all to fit it in? Well, incredibly she seems to be fitting 
a lot of that in as well, so she can't have that much time to herself. But there's definitely no element of compromise for her. That's not the right. word. This is exactly what she wants to be putting her time and resources into. I, I think performances can go well and badly regardless of your circumstances. You just have to try to be as prepared as possible. But it's certainly true that balancing my life over the last year has been un, unimaginably challenging. Um, luckily, there's not a part of the life that I'm inhabiting now that I'm not enthused by and and fed in terms of energy I'm like it, it feeds me with a lot so um, I've had the energy for it all so Tim this project has obviously got a huge amount to commend it but how will it fit in around the other music educational structures that are already in place is it trying to replace them is it trying to work with them what's the approach to collective action well, this is the thing. Obviously, we already have schools and hubs and various charities doing an incredible job in this sector. And Nikki made it very clear that the foundation is not there to replace any of that work. But as we reported earlier in the podcast, music education is pretty low down on the government's list of priorities. Yeah. And often there are holes that need plugging and people working in isolation that need help being pulled together. Mm. I think Nikki put it best herself when she said she sees the foundation as being everywhere and nowhere. So not working in any fixed location, but popping up to inspire wherever it's most needed. You got to pick a pocket or two. Io pur segurio from Alessandro Stradea's Qual prodigio e chio miri, written circa 1675. But as for his people, he led them forth like sheep, from George Friedrich Handel's Israel and Egypt, written in 1738. Help! Hello? This library is enormous! Tim, you've left the reverb on again. Oh, sorry. I was distracted looking through the amazing selection of scores available on the Encoder app. Ooh, what's that? It's a music library app you can download right now. Start with a one-week free trial, then subscribe to access the complete sales and hire catalogues of 100 publishers, including Boozy and Hawks, Baron Writer, Chester and Novello. I must download it from my app store. How do you spell Encoder? N K O D A. 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 N K O D A.
classic world addiction. One week free trial gets you going. Annotate and share your That was the new disc of music by Maria Teresa Agnesi, recorded by Ensemble Mosaico with mezzo-soprano Elena de Simone for the Tactus label. The composer Maria Teresa Agnesi was, fun to say, and also a direct contemporary of C.P.E. Bach, although living in Italy, one of those composers who straddles the Baroque and classical eras. Footnote. Everyone else in this bit of history appears to have been called Maria, so sorry if it becomes confusing. Maria Teresa Agnesi's older sister, Maria Gretana Agnesi, was a famous mathematical and linguistic prodigy who helped write the book on the difference between differential and integral calculus, which meant I spent quite a lot of my listening experience thinking about this. I am very good at integral and differential calculus. I know this. And whilst Maria Gretana was touring Europe lecturing, Maria Teresa was able to trail around performing and learning about music from across the continent. Her harpsichord singing and composition career was sponsored by Maria Theresia, Holy Roman Empress and Sovereign of Lombardy, and Maria Antonia Valpurgis, a gifted composer and contemporary. The Roman Empress was said to have sung at a famous 1747 performance by Maria Theresa Agnesi. Maria's done. Right, so what pieces have the ensemble Mosaico recorded? They've got 12 of the Ari con Instrumenti, Arias with Instruments, written for soprano and small string ensemble in 1749. They're a really pleasing collection, full of variety and a lot of rhetorical moments. They must have been really fun to sing with a lot of, I think, dramatic opportunity to stop, start, change the pace and ornament, which any singer is going to enjoy. The sound is, as we might expect for 1749, essentially nice late Baroque Arias. But the collection includes a really good range of tempi and keys, and I think that makes them a good candidate for recording. But you are going to need a mezzo-soprano who is prepared to sing some very low notes indeed and chunter around in a register that isn't particularly glorious for anyone's voice, that sort of lower bottom end. And how does Elena de Simone get on with it? There are lots of positives, but I think I did somehow come away feeling that it was good rather than great. She's got a beguiling voice, it's very intriguing to listen to, and with quite a wide palette of colours. Sometimes she sounds counter-tenorial, like the clip we heard, and at some points it's very feathery and more like a coloratura soprano. She loves the text into life. It's really all lived, and she's undeniably done her homework in the preparation of it, and it's delivered very emphatically. She's got the best out of herself, and yet, ultimately, it feels, as I said, good rather than outstanding. I think that might just be down to some technical, mechanical issues going on there. Rather than prescribing what I think might be a technical issue, I think actually the important thing to remember is that those mechanical issues, when they're audible to an audience, will either detract from the emotional content, or they will create... 
other distractions like tuning issues or indeterminate vowels you, you become aware of the singer rather than the song uh, and I think that that it does in the end create a little bit of a distance between good and outstanding so while she's really committed and totally gone with it it's the lack of security in that setup that ultimately distinguishes her from maybe some of the other great singers that actually we've got in this country and in London with sport for choice with so many wonderful baroque soloists and is what you just said true of the playing by ensemble Mosaico as well? Well, there's much less for them to do. What they have got to do, they do quite nicely. There's certainly a consistent approach to phrasing. It's one that I personally don't enjoy that much. It's a little bit bulgy. And sometimes rather than a heavy, light Baroque phrasing of a sort of dia, the shortening of that second ya becomes dia which sort of spits out to me. It's definitely what they're going for because it's throughout the disc. It's just not something that particularly I enjoy. I also know that there are various opinions, you know, like on phrasing about tuning and where you want to have the wider intervals in one particular Baroque set of intonations than others. However, it is probably important that we all agree which intervals we're making wide before we start. So there are a couple of moments where one violin appears to be pulling away from the other or something like that. Mm. It doesn't mean that all the work they've done and all the brilliant things they've done aren't still there. It's just there the, are these little things that detract, I think, on this disc. So not a total winner? Not a total winner in terms of absolute performance and recording. If you think about the quality that we've heard on some of the outstanding discs of last year and how those engineers are able to capture the energy in the room, th- you know, this hasn't quite got that. But it is a winner in terms of bringing new repertoire to more people's attention. It's not just another disc of repertoire we know well. For instance, I noticed Warner have just re-released all their Beethoven symphonies with Andre Previn, which is lovely, but it is essentially already on the market. Mm. This, I expect, is the best that this particular group of performers could have done if you include all the effort that goes into researching these manuscripts, putting them together into workable editions, securing the funding, you know, all that extra effort that goes into making a groundbreaking recording like this one. I feel like the next step for composers whose repertoire has been neglected or is re-emerging, like Agnesi, is when a major world-class ensemble is going to take these on. And that will be the next step. That's when we will get the defining recording of these works. This is the groundbreaking one, and it's a worthy effort. But... I can't wait to hear a really top high-end ensemble take it on. Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. A couple of weeks before Christmas, I went and had a chat with Thames and Whaley Cohen and James Bailey about their recently released disc of CPE Bach's complete works for violin and keyboard. We had some coffee and talked about his huge influence on composers like Mozart and Haydn and why he has done to come back into fashion after years in the classical doldrums. Interview, 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 interview. Big welcome to Tamsin Wadykern and James Bailey, who have joined me here in central London today to talk about their new disc. I think what I wanted to first talk about is what surprises many people is that during the 18th century, C.P. Bach was arguably a much bigger name than J.S. Bach, his father. And I was wondering if you could 
explain briefly what it was about C.P. Bach's music that might have set him apart. Was he a bit of a moderniser, would you say, at the time? Yes, very much so. I think he was a complete game-changer, rule-breaker, like probably one of the first bad boys of classical music. Um, to have such a famous and structured father and then to create music like he did must have taken a lot of courage and a lot of... Um, huge imagination. Huge imagination and, and having the, the balls to break all the rules. Mm. I think Mozart's quotes about him saying, C.P. Bach, he was the father, we are the children, mm. showed just how much he changed classical music. And I guess because he was such a maverick, that's why he was so popular. It was changing the way we see things. But, but then the classical period happened and, and Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven came along and um, all the work he'd done, they ran with it and, and created a new movement. Mm. And, um, but I think it's, it's a good time for his rebirth. Yeah. I immensely enjoyed recording all these, these pieces and, and found so much charm, fantasy, imagination, humour. Mm. Beauty. It was it was a real voyage of discovery for us both, I think. And um, so the the works on this disc they span, I think it's fifty six years if my maths are right. By taking such a big cross section of his music, did you get a really good feel for how he developed during his lifetime as well? I think so. I mean, we didn't kind of intend it to be necessary. I mean, we did it all because that's everything that there is for violin and, and keyboard. So it's a sort of, sort of happy circumstance that it does span so much mm. of his life. But you can see a huge development. Mm. I think the very early sonatas, I, mean, I find even the very, very first ones so heartbreakingly beautiful mm. and so full of humour and sort of tenderness and affection for life. Um, what changes? That and then, <laughs> well, I was, like, was going to say, can really, you can still hear quite a lot of his father's and Telemann, his godfather's mm. influence in them. And then it becomes much more free and much more sort of evolving around itself. So free, like, like you said, James always says, like, he's the bad boy if classical music, <laughs> which is, is really cheap, but there's no rules. Mm. So that was a huge thing when we started playing it. We were like, whoa, okay, this is, we can't apply the Brock rules, we can't apply the classical rules, we can't even apply the romantic rules. Like, everything is just thrown out. There's no regular phrase length, there's no harmonic rules, we can go to any key at any time. Constantly mm. taking you by surprise, and that you really see develop. And so by the very last pieces, which were written very shortly before he died, which is a year actually before the French Revolution, there literally anything could happen. The, fan the fantasy is crazy. Yeah, it goes from like a cascades of, of really fast notes to immensely slow music. It's wonderful. Mm. Like the saddest music you've ever heard. And then, and then suddenly... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've, you often say it's like a stream of consciousness, consciousness. of someone having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> but it is a bit like that. <laughs> but was he, was he a deeply... From what you know of him, was he a deeply sensitive man? Because he had quite ostensibly a stable living. He was a court keyboard player and yeah. went on to become a director of music. Do you think circumstances in his life brought him to be that kind of crazy experimentalist composer? Or do you think it's just come from somewhere completely... Random? I think it has to come from a place of confidence. Confidence and, and, yeah. and, and genius, I think. Mm. But to be able to know the rules so well to break them is... Um, is Without losing your listener. Without losing your listener or losing your, your sense of self. Mm. My impression of him as a human would he be, he'd be really fun at a party. 
I mean, I, I got his book of letters, and they're mostly to his publisher complaining about fees and chasing <laughs> payments and complaining about like really boring things or so and so said this or. I mean, you get the impression of just like a very kind of normal guy who wants to enjoy his life. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, he was born into this musical tradition, and as you said, he had strong positions in, in various courts, and he was well supported, which would have given him room to experiment. And he was also very much in that circle of writers and philosophers who were exploring what we now call the Enlightenment, mm. all of those ideas. And his life was stable enough that he could take those risks. Yeah. yeah. Did, did the fact that you, you knew he was this modernizer, he was this genius, did that affect the way that you approached the performance in any way? Yeah, very much so. I think that one of the things about this recording is the first time the complete works have been recorded on modern instruments. Mm. And um, he was a big innovator of instruments as well. The, and, you know, the harpsichord, the piano, the keyboards changed so much mm. during his, his life. And he was very much part of that. So our philosophy of recording it was if C.P.E. Bach had met a Steinway and a Stradivarius, how, you know, so we, we really tried to, to showcase our instruments with as many tonal color possibilities as they were. Mm. And I think the music really benefits from that. On earlier instruments, you don't get as much fantasy and different tonal possibilities as I, as I think that we managed to explore. Yeah. And, and we didn't want to be, we wanted to make it ours and our instinct reaction to it. So. Um, I think it's important to remember also, particularly the later works, Haydn was in his middle opuses by then, Mozart was already writing, so there are lots of modern players who wouldn't think twice about playing them in a very modern style, and while we did, of, of course, research and we have both you know, built up knowledge over the years about period performance practices, it's very much, you know, what colour can we bring that modern instruments afford? What was it that brought you two together for this? Well, we, we first played together at the Opera Festival. Um, yeah. The festival put us together and we, yeah. we did a recital together and both enjoyed it very yeah. much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then this was an idea of Tamsin and she brought... We also happened to live 30 seconds away from each other in oh, London. So we met at the little deli across the road from my place and Sam Tamsin brought these two big, books. big orange books of the complete C.P.E. Bach and, and... I was quite nervous, I remember I was like, <laughs> well, I thought you might be like, no, like, why would I want to do that? And it wasn't a composer I knew much about and I went home and played through it and, and was like, yeah, no, I really want to do this. Yeah. yeah. I learned a wonderful way to develop a partnership with music that we're both coming to refresh. Yeah. Do you think that had a big impact on the way that you approached it as well, that it was completely brand new to you, rather than repertoire that you might have played all your life? I think so, and, and I think also the fact that it's not, you know, there aren't dreams of recordings and dreams of performances that, that we all know. It, yeah, it felt very freeing as a process because it was an instinctive reaction and, yeah. and it was ours. So why do you think J, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach has become so much of a bigger name than his son? I think in our canon we like to place things, Baroque, Classical, Romantic, we like to know where they all stand and this defies 
yeah catalog breaks the rules isn't it so in a, in a funny way I think that's that's part of the reason it, it went out of fashion yeah that's an interesting way of looking at it it's almost as if the canon has sort of swept it under the carpet because it doesn't quite conform to, to their to put idea it. of, yeah. of mm. what should be in the canon yeah that's interesting and I think Bach is such I mean J.S. Bach is such a period just on his own mm. and he embodies the Baroque that was why he was rediscovered and, and, and is so popular now and C.P. Bach would you say that there has been somewhat of a revival of his work? There's definitely, he's starting to appear on concert programmes. Mm. I mean, that's why I, I came across his, of course I knew Bach had lots of sons who were also composers, and, but I had never really heard any of their music, probably until a few years ago. No. Yeah, I think that one of the other things is that nowadays people think of violins and artists with a piano. And these are very, very much like early Mozart. The piano is very much the main instrument and the piano parts are, are really demanding. They're super virtuosic. And so I think it's not a kind of natural works to choose. Perhaps if you're learning mm. repertoire, you need to have quite a lot of technique and understanding already. And in terms of what violinists tend to study as students, it's all about often the focus is really on learning to play your instrument, not learning different functions mm -hmm. and in this music the violin is very often supporting, answering, enhancing middle lines, um, different harmonic functions so it requires quite a different type of musicianship mm. which often cellists are more familiar with or certainly viola players. Um, I, I sort of wonder if that's to do with it as well in the way that violin's been taught perhaps the last couple of generations and I do think that's starting to really change which is really good thing. Yeah. Um, just going back to your earlier point about um, it being very freeing, I actually feel much freer also approaching sort of Mozart and other later composers after doing this project because part of the reason as well as the fact that there wasn't you know there aren't hundreds of recordings or big tradition that you have to acknowledge in some way even if it's rejecting it. The music itself is written in a way that's so improvisatory mm -hmm. and affords so many different possibilities and asks us to be constantly surprising each other and playing games with so much humour um, and to play it convincingly you need to honestly be surprised yourself each time otherwise it sounds you know not, not genuine mm -hmm. and that's something that's super fun and, and incredibly freeing in itself and I think that's another thing that is now starting to be taught again but very much not in uh, certainly my training as a classical musician uh, in quotation marks <laughs> this idea of improvisation and spontaneity which was totally embraced by earlier generations so C.P. Bach would have been his father was Mozart was Beethoven was like unbelievable improvisators on their instruments and you know even Chopin said of his students that he, he's angry if they play the same notes mm. again more than once even in one of his own pieces so our idea of of how music should be approached has is, is really changed a lot probably in the last you know only 80 or 100 years from what was a longer tradition before that. You say that that's reversing somewhat now do you think with younger students? I think in terms of what I see happening in the conservatoires, there's more embracing of the fact that when you go on stage, you're creating something in that moment, for that moment, right. 
which can never be created, recaptured again. And it's not only to do with the people on stage and that energy of how everyone's feeling that evening, but also what's going on with the audience and that interaction. Mm. And that there should be that feeling of all the work has been done to internalize. But in the moment, it's, the analytical brain should be off. You shouldn't be trying to recreate anything from the practice room, but just playing with your instincts, with that kind of animal brain up. Mm. And this uh, music really demands that. Mm. Yeah. Right, Thames and James, thank you very much for speaking to me today. It's been a real pleasure. And thank good you. luck with everything. Great pleasure. Finish! Sam, are there any upcoming highlights for the new year? I think so. On Friday the 17th of January at Queen Elizabeth Hall in London, be sure to catch composer and electronic producer Ryan Lee West, a.k.a. Rival Console, playing new music alongside the London Contemporary Orchestra and organist Claire M. Singer. Also on the 17th in Sheffield's Oval Hall, Jess Gillam will be playing John Adams's saxophone concerto with the Halle under the Japanese conductor Kazuki Yamada. From Wednesday the 15th to Sunday the 19th, the Manchester Collective are performing their new show, Ecstatic Dances, across Leeds, Glasgow, London and Manchester. The gig features music for string quartet and cow ribs, ancient flute, bells and drums. Mm, opening on the January the 18th in Leeds is Opera North's new production of Kurt Weill's Street Scene, directed by Matthew Eberhardt. On Friday 24th of January at the lovely wooden-panelled Oxford House Chapel, Bethnal Green, London. It's the first of a series of BYOB new music concerts called Eavesdropping, featuring singers Sophie Fetukaki and Jennifer Walsh. On the 23rd of January to the 9th of February, in Coventry, Starbridge and Birmingham, there's a brand new festival called Ideas of Noise, with a programme that spans free improvisation, electronica, sound art, contemporary classical installations and workshops. January 23rd is also the 67th birthday of American composer John Luther Adams. So he presumably will release a piece called Become 67. Yep. Whilst January 25th is the birthday of both William Furtwängler and Witold Lutislawski, one they share with Alicia Keys, Etta James, Virginia Woolf and Robbie Burns. Mm, that's a good birthday. Every fortnight from the 26th of January to the 1st of March at St. Martha-on-the-Hill, Surrey, you can catch free contemporary music recitals at the top of this church, which is only accessible by foot. Uh, on the 26th, you can see a theremin and on Martinet player Charlie Draper give a concert. And on the 9th of February, you can catch the Lodore trio. What a treat. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. A big thank you to Virginia Eskin for that wonderful recording of the Amy Beach. If you happen to be in the States, be sure to watch out for the documentary about Beach that Virginia is taking part in. It will be released sometime in January. Also, a big thank you to Rebecca Driver for inviting us along to the Nicola Benedetti sessions. Gian at Tactus Records was enormously helpful when we were looking for that Agnesi disc. And thank you to James, Tamsin and Tessa for speaking to me about CPE Buck. <laughs>